0: From MPB Think Radio, it's Creature Conference to show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Java Chapman, filling in for Kevin Farrell this morning, here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center at Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the program, we welcome back Luke Pearson, herpetologist and biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, who is here to talk about the alligator snapping turtle. We were having a great conversation off mic, and can't wait to get into all of the intricacies Sees of this uh, true dinosaur uh, of, a, <laughs> of a of a reptile or did, did I say, is is it a reptile
1: it is a reptile okay
0: yes. all right i didn't know uh, biology 101 reptiles and amphibians <laughs> correct yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay all right <laughs> well um, libby Welcome back. Yeah, that's my first thing I want to say to you. Fourteen
2: has <laughs> been a long time. I'm, you've been—you've been, you've been I'm a little discombobulated. <laughs> yeah, in
0: in the brand new studio. This is your first time here.
2: <laughs> and it's great looking. Yeah, it's and um, I'm looking forward to the show finally in person. I get yes. to see everybody's face again, and um, of course, see, I've been away from home for fourteen weeks too you know how i love to sit on my front porch or my uh-huh. really my side porch have breakfast the whole thing so i really the first day back i go out with and it was nice and cool felt like oregon weather the whole thing and immediately started hearing my good birds uh-huh. well uh, we'll have to get in this to this another time, but we had some mishaps on the road, and we just kind of had to abandon everything and fly home. <laughs> okay. So um, my binoculars are in Boise, Idaho. Oh, wow. Safely with friends, but I, so I didn't have them, you know, which is that's what's always with me sitting on the porch. So I was just listening, which is Paul's way to bird, you know. Uh-huh. So I immediately, um, and I started turning on my Merlin so I could, double check what I was hearing and stuff and uh, four woodpeckers just right in a row and nice. it was really fun what well, I had a, a red bellied woodpecker was there and then you know I know it's getting to be fall because the yellow bellied sapsucker was doing this thing we've talked about him several times on the show and then I heard a flicker and just and I thought to myself I gotta hear a peleated because you know we just always do and one. wasn't Maybe 10 minutes later, there was the peliated. so <laughs> I thought, okay, it's good to be back home.
0: Well, that's good. Now, um, did you leave your hummingbird feeders up while you were gone, or did you, um, uh, do we still need to leave them up?
2: Um, I have mine up. As soon as that's what I—they I, were not up when I, when I got back to the house, so I don't think the house sitter—they may have used it, but they hadn't recently— and so I did put them back out, and I was hoping because, you know, that's one of the things I've missed is mm-hmm. that rush of hummingbirds, and a lot of times I'll have a bunch. I usually put up four or five hummingbird feeders, and I know some people put up more than that and um, have plenty of hummingbirds, but I haven't seen one come to it yet. So it may be that I feel sure the big push is over, but I'm going to leave mine up.
0: Okay, and, and that's
2: that's one of the cool things about my Oregon house is we have year-round hummingbirds. There.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, I guess coming coming back, uh, uh, what's that kind of big difference between, or or mm-hmm. no, what's the thing that you miss uh, out in Oregon that you you're not going to get yeah. here? Yeah,
2: there's an Anna's hummingbird that looks a lot like our ruby-throated hummingbird, and uh, you can also get ruby throats out there, but I think that's pretty rare. But so Anna's is a little bigger. Maybe a little hardier, but still, it it just scares me for these little hummingbirds. They stay all winter long, mm-hmm. so I've seen them out there, you know, on the ice and snow and everything else. So I figure, you gotta have your hummingbird feeder out. You know, if they're if they're that diligent to stay there all year, I figure you gotta reward them with a little something. But um, it's a tough world. But they, for whatever reason, evolution has um, decided that. Uh, It works better for them just to stay right there stay put well
0: that's good that's good and we we are happy to have you back Libby because we always uh you know we love your your correspondences from out west (laughs) but we like you here in uh in Mississippi
2: I appreciate you letting me do that
0: um Dr. Major how are you doing this morning? good
3: morning good fine uh, dogs seem to be very, very fairly calm this morning
0: yeah we don't have our, our the background our chorus in the background this morning <laughs> right now we it did, may start
3: up at any moment though oh we <laughs> all,
0: we always welcome it we always welcome it now we did get a quick email um, not too long ago um, for you dr. major uh, kind of yes. want to preface it um, because the weather is cooling um, a little bit but you know now is not the time for us to uh, slow down on our flea and treat, uh, flea and tick treatment for our uh, dogs and cats. And the question from the email was actually talking about a specific type of flea and uh flea treatment. Uh, the common name is Capstar. Now I'm gonna I'm re- try to repeat this, but I don't think I'm gonna do it right. Not notiprin. Okay. And that was the um, and the Capstar is the generic name. And they were asking, what are your thoughts on this for uh flea tick flea treatment for um, cats?
3: You know, certainly. Uh, I've had no problems with that. Uh, it's very effective. It only lasts for a short period of time. Don't count on it as a long-term or even a monthly uh, flea preventive. Uh, it's very excellent. It kills kills the fleas uh, within 30, 45 minutes. They'll start dying. And a lot of clinics use that when dogs come in just as the preemptive and cat's preemptive method uh, to prevent fleas from getting in the clinic. Uh, simply with borders and everything else would get a Capstar. Uh, evidence has shown that Capstar is very effective. Uh, some of their initial research was down in Karn, uh Australia, and actually they would go from house to house with people that wanted to uh, utilize this because there was a severe flea problem there. Pretty tropical there and they found that by giving it to every animal in the house once a month that they'd cut the significant uh, flea population down significantly but in most cases it's not used in that fashion uh it's usually used on a one-time basis when you have fleas
0: so this capstar is more of a, like a um i guess a quick treatment and like it you is. said it, it wouldn't uh even survive the month is this common with most things that you will find uh, I guess, like in your, in your grocery store, uh, on, on, on the pet aisle?
3: Okay, you know, you've got some things in the pet aisle. There, there, there are quite a few generic spinoffs from, uh, like, Frontline, uh, that sort of thing. And some of them work well, some of them don't. And uh, I would have to say that I can't really recommend any of those that I don't know anything about. But they uh, obviously are sold. And all I can say is that be careful and use the follow the instructions if you get those. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can put on a dog that you should not put on a cat. So you've got to read the instructions very carefully.
0: Yeah, I know from personal experience with my uh, with my dog Lady that um, that. You know, the things that we get from the grocery store often wouldn't wouldn't work or maybe I wasn't applying them uh correctly and we went with a, uh with a monthly oral uh I forget the name of it, but that always uh, has helped us where well that we get from the vet.
3: Right. And that that does seem I'm not sure which one you had, but uh there's several that do work quite well. The uh one of the things that you know, fleas and certain uh Areas have a resistance to certain uh, uh, insecticides, and it may be that in a certain population of fleas will build up a resistance. The other thing is that a lot of times you don't think that the flea treatment is working, but the pet is going outside and picking them up uh, outside, so you always have a fresh population of live fleas. Uh, in many cases, the house, the yard, and the pet has to be treated if you have a severe infestation.
0: That was actually, actually going to be my next question about when you treat your dog uh, or your cat, um, how important it is to treat the environment as well, because like you just said, they'll pick up fresh fleas um, from the environment, and the uh, the ones on their body are you know being treated to your exact point right that you just said.
3: But it would appear if you if you look at it just at that, you'd say, well, gosh, this is not working. But it does take a little while for it to work with these fleas that just you pick up in the yard or wherever. So there are things available. I would read the label uh, very carefully uh, before you use them. Most of them are in a spray form, and you don't need to spray where the animals uh, will get on the the wet spray. It needs to be dry. So follow the directions completely. That's the best I can say.
0: All right, I'm Java Chapman filling in for Kevin Farrell this morning here with the usual suspects, Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And today we welcome back our guest, Luke Pearson, herpetologist and biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And if you want to join the conversation this morning or uh, with a question or comment, send an email to animals at org. Luke, welcome back to the show,
1: man. Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I remember you were here in uh, 2019 and you were um, under the guise of uh, University of Southern Mississippi, yes. and I think you had just nabbed a, a, a maybe a hundred pounder or something like that.
1: Yeah, 2019. That would have been one of our. F- that would have been the the first hundred plus pound turtle that we caught. But we've got a couple more now. Oh wow! Where um where where are these giants being found? Most of these giants are being found in the Mississippi Delta. So, a lot of the southern delta region around the Yazoo River. Um, We've got a couple locations down there where we've caught up to 147 pounders. So, some substantial turtles.
0: Yeah, substantial is... uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was telling a a little story earlier about the uh, turtle that I saw just in the middle of the road on the way to work one day. And I thought it may have been an alligator snapping turtle. You told me it could have been a common snapping turtle. What's the difference between a alligator snapping turtle and uh, just a common snapping turtle?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, this gets confused a lot. Most of the time, if you see a snapping turtle on the road, it's going to be a common or what we call an eastern snapping turtle. Uh, they usually have relatively smooth shells, really long necks, and um, they're very feisty when you approach them. So they will... Either stand up really tall, they'll turn around, they'll face you, they'll strike really fast. That's a common or an eastern snapping turtle. Not very fun to deal with. (laughs) Alligator snapping turtles, they look vicious. They have huge heads, hooked beaks, uh, big ridges that go down their carapace, the top shell. So they look a lot more like a dinosaur. They look mean and aggressive. But when they're on land... They really just sit there with their mouths open and they don't really do anything. So if depending on where you're seeing these turtles, one is probably going to be more likely to be a common snapping turtle versus an alligator snapping turtle.
0: And now when I think back, um, it was an alligator snapping turtle because of the ridges on the back of the shell. For that to be a good uh, distinction with the more smooth shell and then the more rigid shell, that's what it was. Well that's and awesome. it was more docile, I will say that. I was scared nevertheless, you know, because I've seen <laughs> kind of uh, you know, pictures and and, and and videos of the snap that some of these snapping turtles have and it's
1: it's vicious. Oh yes. I can first hand experience. You know it is quite painful to be bitten by some of these snapping turtles and it's awesome that you got to actually see an alligator snapping turtle on land that is extraordinarily rare and i think
0: it was after maybe a, a, a big rain or something because um, you know around this area there are uh, creeks and, and waterways and stuff like that so i think that's what made it push push it out to to land For sure.
1: Yeah. When it it rains hard, uh, for some reason, that seems to initiate a little bit of movement in alligator snapping turtles. And if you actually look at a lot of these these, uh, alligator snappers that are showing up on land, especially more recently, it's usually happening during or immediately after a heavy rain event.
0: Yeah. So what got you, um, I guess... Uh, let's let's back up a little bit and talk about uh, Luke. How did you become a herpetologist and uh, make your way to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service?
1: Oh, so I actually started in a fish lab, freshwater fish, doing uh, kind of darter and minnow work in Arkansas. And after about a year and a half, two years of that, I learned that uh, I don't want to have to use a microscope to identify the difference <laughs> between tiny little fish. I wanted something that was a lot bigger and easier to identify and that led me to our herps our reptiles and amphibians and through a series of events master's degree i ended up going to illinois um, where they were reintroducing alligator snapping turtles back into the wild where they'd only ever caught maybe one wild alligator snapper in the last 30 years down there so they're Re, they were reintroducing this population, and I would have the the privilege to be able to participate in that reintroduction program. And really, that sparked my interest in in alligator snapping turtles specifically, but aquatic turtles in general. So after after that, spent five years in Hattiesburg at the University of Southern Mississippi doing my PhD, where I got to travel the whole state of Mississippi on all of these really cool rivers and streams that we have trapping for alligator snapping turtles, just to kind of see where they are, how many there are, and and use that information to determine if this species needs to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. And through a whole bunch of series of really fortunate events <laughs> for me, I got a position as a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, specifically working with our aquatic turtle species.
0: Now, are these um, turtles on the endangered species list? Oh,
1: good question. They are not. They have been proposed as threatened. So that means that the the Fish and Wildlife Service has gone through their, what we call a species status assessment that kind of compiles all of the information that we currently know about the species and has made a decision uh, back in November of last year. They made a decision to... Propose to list the alligator snapping turtle as threatened. Uh, that does not mean they are listed yet. Um, we have to go through uh, all of the public comments that we received. So, comments from the public, from uh, wildlife organizations, from other federal agencies and state agencies, and determine if proposing or if listing the species as threatened is still warranted.
0: Okay, well, we're going to talk more about uh, the, I guess, the conservation efforts and uh, finding out more about these uh, alligator snapping turtles. But we do have a question uh, on the line from uh, one of our regular callers. We always love because she always has something great to add to the conversation. Sue in Beaumont uh, wants to speak with us this morning. Good morning, Sue.
4: Good morning, y'all. Uh, I, I want to ask your guest a question about turtles and tortoises. Are my favorite critters, by the way, but. I wanted to ask a question. I I was cleaning up and I came across an old newspaper from the Richmond Dispatch, about about a year old, and it was a a large, almost a quarter-page ad in there about, excuse me, some some company, just one of these paper processing mills, want to withdraw 50,000 gallons of water a day from the Leaf River to process their product, you know, and this comes up on a regular basis. Somebody wants to come down there and and dry up the Leaf River to process their product. So, uh, is that affecting the uh, the, the turtles? The, I mean, and, and the effluent from these plants go out into the river. How, how are the critters handling that? Are they able to survive all that stuff?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So, the when you're removing water from a river system, obviously you're going to be reducing the amount of water that's that's. Uh, flowing through that river system so that can be that can exacerbate drought conditions so if we don't have a lot of rain during the summer the leaf river gets really really low and they're still removing a substantial amount of water every day you are they're they're lowering potentially lowering the water levels which can cause issues with with uh available habitat with food resources and and, and whatnot and the leaf river is home to the yellow-blotched map turtle, which is a, a threatened species, um, so that is one of a potential concern. Um, talking about the effluent from some of these locations, uh, there actually was some evidence back a couple decades ago that there was a effluent discharge somewhere on somewhere within the Pascagoula River, and um, it caused some uh, some fish kills, I believe, back in the day, and it was thought that there's some evidence that that yellow-blotched map turtles have a, had a little bit of uh hormone disruptions so reproductive hormone disruptions like estrogen and testosterone were impacted by this effluent and there may still be a lingering effect from that kind of effluent discharge into the future which impacts you know the number of eggs that they may lay their uh mating behaviors and and the success of their eggs hatching. So yeah, this stuff is definitely a concern for some of our turtle species. You know, maybe just as a clarification,
2: uh, when Sue's talking about they remove water from the river to use in a process and then the effluent, generally what they do is they want to put that what's left of the water back in at some point, right? And that's the effluent you're talking about. And never is it cleaner than when they pulled it out, right? So it's going yeah. back in with problems. It's going back in with some
1: potential chemicals and toxins and whatnot, yes.
2: And also we know that those same hormonal effects that, um, or we we suspect that uh, the same hormonal effects that turtles are experiencing in rivers all over the country, that those hormonal changes may be affecting humans that
1: use that water too. Definitely. And, and hormone hormone mimics and and anything that has to do with hormones it's very surprising how little of an amount that you need to actually impact hormonal cycles and it's really it's so so when we're seeing that kind of just minute changes in hormones within an animal within a, a turtle a fish a human it really can impact reproduction and and mating behaviors
0: And that is very important, especially, like you said, with these uh, alligator snapping turtles being listed as proposed threatened. Did I get that right? Yes, Yes, <laughs> Proposed threat Not quite on the endangered species list But we want to try to help them move in the other direction I'm Java Chapman Filling in for Kevin Farrell this morning Along with Dr. Troy Major Libby Hartfield And our guest for the day herpetologists and biologists From the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Mr. Luke Pearson Now on the line we do have Francis from Natchez With I guess is going to be the best question <laughs> of the hour But before we get to that question Um we talked a little bit about where these, uh, these uh, alligator snapper turtles are found, but what is, uh, I guess, what makes their habitat so preferred? Like, what is the preferred habitat for an alligator snapping turtle?
1: Oh, that's a good question. This is where you have the, the split between your common and eastern snapping turtles and your alligator snapping turtles. The alligator snapping turtles are primarily your small to large rivers, uh, the big oxbow lakes, the horseshoe lakes that come off of the rivers, and uh, the bayous, the swamps, the streams that roll into those flowing systems. So that's your preferred habitat. Generally, south-central Mississippi, the Mississippi Delta, when you start getting into north Mississippi, you know, up near north of Oxford, up near Tupelo, uh, the alligator snappers start... Kind of falling out. You're not getting as many of the uh, of them up in those areas of the state.
0: All right, and like I said, Francis from Natchez has joined the show. Um, first off, Francis, I got to thank you for my gift that you left uh, for me um, while I was out. And uh, uh, what's your question this morning?
5: Yes, uh, a few years ago, a good friend of mine brought two snapping turtles by the house to let me look at them. They were each. About 200 pounds apiece, and their neck was as big as mine. I'd like to know what was what's the largest snapping turtle ever ever uh, you know uh, documented.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, so for so the largest ever was 250 pounds, and that was actually an obese zoo animal. That was kept in the Brooklyn Zoo. Um, the largest wild one was actually recently caught. That was caught in Texas uh, last year by some uh, alligator snapping turtle researchers, and they measured it out to be 211 pounds. Wow. And this was an official verified wild alligator snapping turtle. Um, I know Mississippi's record is sitting somewhere in the mid-190s officially. Um, although i have seen photos on facebook that have some very very large turtles that you can't i wouldn't believe see,
0: everything you see on facebook now you can't see
1: you can't believe everything but there is there was one picture that i was like that turtle is bigger than any turtle i've ever caught and i've caught up to 150 pounder
0: does that uh, satisfy you this morning, Francis?
5: Yes, sir. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, right. you
2: saw some big ones. You saw some really big oh, ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the, the bad part about it,
3: he was headed to a restaurant in New Orleans to tell them yep. so that they
1: could make food. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have too many super large alligator snapping turtles anymore. Wow. It's because. It's thought that some of these very large adult males were harvested for the soup industry back in in the 60s, 70s, and 80s.
0: Does that kind of contribute to, like, well, I guess you just answered the question, it contributes to their low numbers now. Yep. Wow, I never would have thought that. Turtle soup. Turtle soup. From alligator salmon turtles. From
1: alligator Snack It used to be green sea turtles. Wow. And then it, it actually, when green sea turtles got protected... They move to alligators, happy turtles because they're large freshwater turtles. Yep. This,
0: this turned into deep south dining real quick. <laughs>
1: too too much
2: of anything is bad, right? Yeah,
0: that is. Yeah, this it should be some kind of a different way. Now we talked about these what one ninety pounders, these two hundred pounders. Now what are they eating to to get this big?
1: Anything that they can put in their mouth. So these are, they are, a lot of people think they're carnivores. They're not carnivores. They're not strictly meat eaters. They eat anything. We have seen them eat, uh, of course, fish. We've seen them eat other turtles. We've seen them eat snakes, pieces of alligators, all sorts of stuff, dead hogs, dead deer that you throw your, you know, your your harvested deer off the side of the bridge that we see a lot. Mm -hmm. They'll get into those deer and eat them. Uh, but we've also seen them eat acorns and muscadines and persimmons and all sorts of nuts and fruit in the floodplain.
0: Now, their is it true their tongue is like a, a like a lure? Yeah. Get, yeah. How does that work?
1: They are the only turtle in the world that has a tongue that's been modified into what we call a lingual lure. It just means it's a tongue lure. It looks like uh, a small wiggly worm, and it can be a Variety of colors actually. It can be pure white to bright pink to bright red to gray to purple to multicolored. And the idea is that these guys have huge jaws. They can open them real wide and they are super camouflaged. So they will sit on the bottom, they'll sit in a big log jam underwater, open their mouth, wiggle that tongue around and fish will come in, crayfish will come in, other turtles will come in, thinking that they can get an easy meal from this (laughs) wiggly worm. Yeah. And they don't see the rest of the alligator snapping turtles sitting there, and that's when they ambush those animals.
0: Now, is it true that they can stay submerged for about 50 minutes, 40 to 50 minutes? That's
1: what we think. We think about 45 to 50 minutes is the extent during uh, maybe, let's say, warmer water temperatures. When you start getting colder water temperatures, they are, they're uh, ectotherm, so they have a slower metabolism than us. So when the water temps cool down, they can stay underwater for a little bit longer than that time, but generally, 45 minutes or so.
0: All right. Well, we're talking with Luke Pearson, herpetologist and biologist from the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and we have another caller on the line. Let's go to uh, Avery in Pike County, who has a question this morning. Good morning, Avery.
5: Uh, good morning, Uh I've got some property on the upper Bogachita River in Pike County, and I have not seen an alligator snapping turtle in decades. Uh, I was wondering if any studies have been done on the Bogachita River.
1: Yes, so you said Pike County. Um, Where in relation to Tyler Town is that?
5: Uh, that would be north of Tyler Town. We are probably river miles, ten to fifteen miles north of uh, of Tyler Town.
1: Okay, so I actually trapped on the Bogachito River in the vicinity of Tyler Town. Um, it could be that Tyler Town is a that section of the Bogachito River is pretty shallow. Um, when you start getting into those shallow headwater systems, alligator snapping turtles get less abundant. We did catch some in the Boca River in that area, but I could see if you're going 10, 15 river miles further north uh, upstream on that stretch that you're going to be a lot less likely to see alligator snapping turtles for sure.
5: Well, I I recall seeing them when I was in my uh, teens and early 20s, but like I said, I've not seen any in decades.
1: Yeah, it could be that that that's a one what we consider a range contraction in the state where they're kind of being they're they're just losing sections of their range. They're they're no longer in a certain area of the system, like in the upper headwaters of the Bogachito, but we can still catch them slightly downstream from there. So it could just be that. They're slowly losing populations in some of those regions. Uh, what we do know is that the Boguchito runs through Louisiana, and Louisiana uh, has different turtle laws than Mississippi does. So, when you have different turtle laws, um, there are different harvest pressures. So, for alligator snapping turtles, Mississippi and Louisiana are the only two states that allow recreational harvest. So, Mississippi's a lot stricter. One alligator snapper per person per year. Louisiana is very lax. Mm. One per person per day. So when you start doing that, one person can harvest 365 alligator snapping turtles a year in Louisiana. Well, that's going to impact our upstream populations of the Bogochitto River because most of the Bogochitto is in Louisiana. So that could be something that we're seeing artifacts of in your area of the state.
5: Right, right. What depth water would uh, would a snapping turtle live in?
1: Uh, usually, the deeper the better. Um, if you're talking about your areas, you're talking about relatively shallow, gravelly stream. Um, they will be found in those deep holes. Um, but we've seen adult male forty-five, fifty-pound alligator snapping turtles in water that you can't that can't go over your thigh. Like quite shallow water, Um, but you know we also get them when they're 30 feet deep in a in a hole. So they can live in these small systems. I think they just move a lot in these small rivers.
5: Okay, thanks a lot. You answer my question.
1: Uh, Thanks for your question.
0: Well, we appreciate you calling this morning, Avery. Um, We did get an email come through, and uh, it deals with uh, finding an alligator snapping turtle. Um, I know we say that they're rare, and some people may think that they are alligator snapping, but they could be common snapping turtles, but let's see if this is the same. Um, I have a creek behind my house. Uh, I found one in my backyard once. Once you find it, what do you do with it? Once you find a, a alligator snapping turtle or maybe even a common snapping turtle, what do you, what do you do with it?
1: So when I find one, we're, we're mainly finding these and we're, it's going to be part of a research project. So when we find it, the first thing we do is we take the location of where that turtle was found. So if it's in your backyard, then you can, you know, you can put your address in or coordinates and that's what we would take coordinates. This is where this turtle was found. Um, what we also do is a different measurements on the turtle so we'll measure the top shell the carapace uh, we'll measure the bottom shell the plastron and we'll get its weight and those things mixed together plus the tail length will tell you if it's a male a female or a juvenile uh, if you're seeing it coming out of the creek and it is an alligator snapping turtle and it's coming out onto land chances are it's probably a female uh coming up to lay eggs especially if it's anywhere in april may uh the months of april or may if it's any time after that it could be a male moving between water bodies uh, but those are generally what we do once we do that we will tag the turtle and release it back where we caught it as a
2: landowner if he finds one uh, should he make a phone if, call if, yeah if the water should he take some information for you take pictures of it or? oh yeah
1: for sure uh we will uh i will keep track of all of the turtles that mm-hmm. that uh, are sent to me uh mainly ones like alligator snapping turtles some of our map turtles uh yeah so if you see what you is an alligator snapping turtle or a chicken turtle uh, nesting. Wait, what is a chicken oh, turtle? Oh, chicken turtles are rare. A pretty rare turtle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, the reason I bring that up is because someone posted on Facebook yesterday of a eastern chicken turtle nesting in their backyard yesterday. Wow. So, they're really cool. But uh, if you have, you know, some of these turtles that you think are really cool, they're coming up into your yard, they're nesting, you see them, take a photo, you can email it to me. Uh, it's just my name, Luke underscore Pearson at FWS.gov. And then do we
2: put it as safely as possible back into the closest water body? And or do you leave it alone and let it nest first? You if, want it possible?
1: Yeah. So if it is coming up and nesting, like if it is in your yard between the months of mid-April to June, July, uh, and it looks like it's about to start digging a nest or has dug a nest, just leave it alone let it do its thing, let it lay its eggs. Once it lays its eggs, that turtle's going to turn around and leave. It's going to go right back where it came. Um, If it is on the road, then you want to try to move it across the road in the direction that it was heading. So whatever way it was facing is the way you want to move the turtle. If you're moving a snapping turtle, you have to be very careful. Very careful. Very careful. (laughs) Uh, you, You hold it on the back of the shell, or if you can't hold it, you can put one of your car mats down. And you can kind of push the turtle onto the car mat and drag the car mat across the road um, to make it a little bit easier. But
0: you don't want to get in front of the snapping turtle, right? No.
1: So all turtles can bite, (laughs) and some turtles bite a lot harder than others, and snapping turtles bite very hard. So you do not want to be in front of a snapping turtle. You need to watch your hands, your toes, and your forearms. Yeah. I know. I've
2: used a a downed limb before to just kind of rake it across the road Especially a common. You don't want to pick up no. a common. If you can help it, that long neck will find your hand. It
1: will, If yeah. you're not very careful. Yeah, and and you have to think about it this way, is that some, you know, don't be overly aggressive with the turtle, but anything is better moving it off the road than it getting hit by a car. Yeah. Yes,
0: that, is, that so is true.
1: If you have to pick it up with a shovel, pick it up with a shovel and move it.
0: That may be your best bet because the shovel has a little handle on it. If you've got a shovel, that's yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can stay. You can stay yeah. away. Some Java Chapman, along with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Harfield, and our guest for the day, herpetologist Luke Pearson with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Let's go ahead and uh, jump back on the phone. We've been having a great conversation about alligator snapping turtles, and let's speak with Rachel from Upora. Good morning, Rachel.
6: Good morning. I would like to ask. Uh, Mr. Pearson what his personal opinion is of uh, turtles as pets and also is there ever a good reason to kill a turtle um, I had an uncle who used to shoot them in his pond because he said they were eating his fish
1: Oh, good questions so uh, first question was are should you have a turtle as a pet? Um, You should not have a native turtle, a wild native turtle, as a pet. So, so if you find
0: a turtle, do alone. leave it alone.
1: Yeah, leave it alone. Um, if you find one in the wild, don't take it home. Leave it where it is. If you want a turtle as a pet, there are plenty of turtle breeders uh, that are, you know, reliable turtle breeders that are captive breeding some of these animals that you can get as a pet. However there's a big caveat to that turtles live a really long time a lot of people you know uh, will remember the little sliders that you can get in the little fish bowls and then that slider dies in four years that's not normal that turtle should live 35 years so when you are dealing with pets as as turtle pets you need to anticipate that this animal, if it's a if it's a freshwater turtle, is going to be around for 25 to 50 years, depending on the species. And if it's a box turtle or a tortoise, you're looking at you might as well write it into your will. You're gonna have to <laughs> you're gonna have to have your kids inherit it because it's gonna be a 50, 80, 90 year long pet. Um, you just have to keep that in mind. You need proper husbandry. So they need to be kept in proper environments. They need to be kept with UV lights if they're going to be inside, with heat lamps, with proper water, proper food, because a lot of things can go wrong with a pet turtle. So it's something that you have to do your research on, and I would not recommend it for a beginner. Uh, The other one was uh, you're referring to something that we call plinking when you shoot basking turtles. Um, That is... The idea behind that is it's, it's an older practice. It still does happen. We still do find turtles that have been shot. Um, the idea is that when you're killing turtles in your pond, it's, the thought is that they eat all of the fish or that they are you know destroying the ecosystem in the pond. That's not the case. Turtles aren't as fast as fish. Fish are much faster than them. So the turtles that are catching fish are catching the fish that are old, that are very young or injured so they're actually making fish populations healthier in your pond and they're cleaning up all the gunk because they're scavengers as well they'll eat all the dead stuff in the pond so although it looks like the pond is infested with turtles it actually is is holding the proper amount of turtles for that size pond so it's not a good idea to go out and shoot turtles And we also have to keep in mind that Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, does have regulations on turtle harvest, and you're only allowed to take and harvest a certain number of turtles. I think it's four individuals of a single species per year. So if you're going out and and shooting 5, 10, 15 turtles in a day, that's against the Mississippi state regulations as well.
0: Well, Rachel, does that uh, satisfy you this morning? Yes,
1: those
6: are very good answers, and I would just uh say that it's uh, to leave the turtles and other wildlife alone that uh and not to have them as pets uh because uh they will be robbed of their natural uh lifestyle and uh age and so so forth well that's but I appreciate a great way to answer so much.
0: Thank you for calling, Rachel.
2: With small children at the museum, we've always told them, you can greet the turtle and watch them and take their picture, whatever, visit with them a little bit and let them go. Let them
0: go home. Let them be. Now, we've been talking um, more exclusively about the alligator snapping turtle, and you said that they're not um, endangered, but they're proposed to be uh, listed as threatened. Correct. Now, what do you, uh, I guess, uh, go with that? What is the cause of those decline in numbers that could, uh, you know, potentially get them on the endangered species list?
1: So the original decline in numbers for alligator snapping turtles came from that historical commercial harvest for the soup industry. Uh, we we don't know how many there were previously, but some anecdotal records from turtle harvesters in the '60s, '70s, '80s suggest that some populations of alligator snapping turtles, you know, were being very heavily harvested. Um, You know, there's some places out in the Flint River in Georgia where, you know, a single, every day, 8,000 pounds of alligator snappy turtles were taken out every single day during turtle harvesting season. And that's a ton of turtles. So a lot of that was shut down, which is good. But, you know, this turtle lives for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, potentially, and it takes fifteen. 18 years for them to reach maturity. So when you have such a long lifespan and a long time to maturity, it takes a long time to recover from something like that. And nowadays, it's mainly, you know, habitat destruction. It's uh, their nests being eaten by raccoons because more people means more food means more raccoons. More raccoons (laughs) means less (laughs) turtle nests surviving. And then we do have uh, incidental capture on some of our fishing equipment. So trot lines and limb lines and some of these commercial hoop nets. Um, so those are the main threats to this species right now.
0: Now, before we get out of here, you are going to be giving a, um, a lecture at the Clinton Nature Center on Thursday, uh, October 20th yes. at uh, 6 p.m. And you're going to be talking about alligator snapping turtle? Yes,
1: yeah, so I'll be talking a little bit about Mississippi's turtles in general and then going more into depth on some of the work that I've done in Mississippi with alligator snapping turtles
0: okay are you gonna bring anybody
1: oh i will bring (laughs) i'll probably bring a shell or two okay maybe a skull of one of our larger alligator snapping turtles that we recovered
0: yeah and you've okay. got a
1: lot of cool
2: photographs.
1: And there's a lot yeah. of cool yeah. photographs. This this is going to be a lot of pictures.
0: Okay, well, that's good. That's at the Clinton Nature Center on um, Thursday, October 20th. You can uh, check out our guest Luke Pearson. We appreciate you for coming in this morning, man.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: All right. Now, Creature Conference is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by listeners like you to hear today's show or previous shows you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org now today's show was engineered by liz gill and our call screener was jason klein for libby hartfield dr major and our guest luke pearson i'm java chapman make sure you tune in next thursday at nine for creature comforts heard only on mpb think radio
5: this is an mpb think radio podcast To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
2: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.